The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 7. The Horror of Hell. What Revelation 20:15 talks about is the lake of fire. You know, it's interesting, polls consistently reveal that most Americans believe in heaven, but, and most Americans believe they're going there, but most Americans don't believe in hell, and almost nobody believes they're going there. So clearly, as if there weren't already <laughs> signs of this already tonight, we've entered into a realm where we've left behind the politically correct and the culturally popular for the biblical, which leads to some introductory questions. First, we must approach this doctrine biblically. I can't say it any better than Francis Chan does in his book called Erasing Hell. Let's be eager to leave what is familiar for what is true. Nothing outside of God and his truth should be sacred to us. And so it is with hell. If God is, if hell is some primitive myth left over from some conservative tradition, then let's set it on that dusty shelf next to other traditional beliefs that have no basis in Scripture. But if it's true, if the Bible teaches that there is a literal hell awaiting those who don't believe in Jesus, then this reality must change us. It should certainly purge our souls of all complacency. And we need to realize the Bible speaks clearly about hell. Some people say, well, the Bible does. That's, that's just the God of the Old Testament or other obscure passages in the New Testament. Jesus never talks about hell. On the contrary, Jesus is the one who talks about hell the most which most people don't realize and immediately exposes the warped perception that people have of Jesus. Tim Keller writes, if Jesus, the Lord of love and author of grace, spoke about hell more often in a more vivid, blood-curdling manner than anyone else, it must be a crucial truth. Likewise, Packer said, all the language that strikes terror into our hearts, weeping and gnashing of teeth, outer darkness, the worm, the fire, Gehenna, the great gulf fixed, is all directly taken from our Lord's teaching. It is from Jesus Christ that we learn the doctrine of eternal punishment. The Bible speaks clearly about hell, and the Bible speaks comprehensively about hell. There's no doubt at the end of the Bible that hell is real. If there's any truth in Scripture at all, this is true. Those who stubbornly refuse to submit to the gospel and to love and obey Jesus Christ incur at the last advent an infinite and irreparable loss. They pass into a night on which no morning dawns. Now, even as the Bible speaks clearly and comprehensively about hell, we must realize the aim of Scripture is not primarily to inform people about the details of hell. That's not why the Bible talks about hell. Instead, the aim of Scripture is primarily to warn people about the danger of hell. That's why we've got it in the Bible. So we may not get answers to all of our questions about what hell looks like, what people in hell are doing, but we get a clear and comprehensive picture of the danger of hell in Scripture so that we might repent of sin and live in righteousness. Hell is not in the Bible, Richard Brooks said, for us to debate it or reject it. If it, is, it is there so we might escape from it. So we approach this doctrine biblically and we approach this doctrine humbly. So Romans 9 envisions a, envisions a hypothetical person, much like we talked about a moment ago, who's questioning God's judgment. Oh, that's a thick passage of Scripture. We don't have time to dive into it in depth tonight. But I want to point out a few things here. One, we don't deserve God's mercy. God, Paul quotes from Exodus 33 in this Romans 9 passage. Says God, will have, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And and the reality is that quote from Exodus 33 takes us back to Exodus 32 where people of God formed a golden calf while Moses was up on the mountain. Moses is coming back down. He sees what has happened and God says, I'm going to strike them all down. Moses intercedes for them and by God's mercy, only 3,000 people are struck down in that day. But the reality is all deserve to be struck down. And the reality is all. We've talked about this. God would be just to condemn all people. If God was acting only on the basis of justice, we would all go to hell forever. That is the only thing God ought to do. 
It's the sheer mercy of God that he's gracious to save some people. If God's judgment falls upon us, there's no injustice in God. And if God's mercy falls upon us, there's no injustice in God. We don't deserve God's mercy, ladies and gentlemen, and we dare not defy God's authority. That's the point in Romans 9 when you read it. He's creature, we're, well, he's creator, we're creature. He's potter, we're clay. He's infinitely wise, infinitely good. He's owner, we're owned. He's God, we're not. And we are so quick to forget this distinction. We're so quick to put ourselves in the place of God, put ourselves in a position to judge God. We're like, we're like Job who questioned God in the midst of his struggles. And God says, will even you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? Ladies and gentlemen, we had no right to judge God's ways. Who are we to pass judgment on the justice of the decision of the all-wise? Who are we to say what is consistent or inconsistent with God's righteousness? Sin has so enfeebled our power of righteous judgment, so darkened our understanding, so dulled our conscience, so perverted our wills, so corrupted our hearts that we are quite incompetent to decide. We are ourselves so infected and affected by sin that we are altogether incapable of estimating its due merits. Imagine a company of criminals passing judgment on the equity and goodness of the law which had condemned them. We don't have the right to indict God and say to him, how can you act this way? When the reality of Scripture is, God has the right to do what he wants. So be careful. When you read passages like Romans 9, be careful that you don't start to play God and tell God how he should act. Be careful that you don't say to God, your ways are different than my ways, oh God, and my ways are better. Our hearts are nowhere near good enough to judge the goodness of God. Our minds are nowhere near knowledgeable enough to question the knowledge, wisdom of God. There are millions of things that we don't know or understand in Scripture and the universe, and God understands them all. And it's the, don't forget, it's the essence of sin. It is the essence of sin to say, my ways are better than your ways, oh God. So be very, very careful. Don't, don't go there. We must approach, must approach this doctrine humbly before God. We must approach this doctrine personally, meaning not from a distance. We're not considering some stale theological doctrine. When we talk about the horror of hell, we're contemplating a real eternal, eternal destiny for people, for people we know and for people we love and people we live around and people we work with and with masses and multitudes, millions and millions of people in the world. This is not mere theological discussion. This is people's destiny. So we approach this doctrine personally and we must approach this doctrine passionately. Not just with the intellect, but with the affections. This doctrine should be emotionally difficult, emotionally draining to consider. If, if our hearts are not moved with deep sorrow when we contemplate the horror of hell, we've missed the point altogether. Francis wrote when he wrote that book, I'm scared to write a book on hell because so much is at stake. Think about it. If I say there's no hell and it turns out there is a hell, I may lead people in the very place I convinced them to not exist. And I say there is a hell and I'm wrong. I may persuade people to spend their lives frantically warning loved ones about a tearing prime place that isn't real. When it comes to hell, we can't afford to be wrong. This is not one of those doctrines where you can toss in your two cents, shrug your shoulders and move on. Too much is at stake. Too many people are at stake and the Bible has too much to say. So what does the Bible say? Ten biblical realities. Number one, hell is a place of ultimate justice. Hell is the biblical, logical, unavoidable end of all that we've seen to this point. All that we've seen in the gospel. God's just. We've sinned against God. We deserve when we die separated from God, that results in eternal spiritual death, ultimate justice. Revelation 6, 16, 19, 20, all make that clear. Paul Helm rightfully concludes, if God is supremely just and just in a sense which is recognizable as just by his human creatures, and if hell exists because it's ordained by God, then hell must be just. Hell is a place of ultimate justice. Second, hell is a place of fiery agony. This is how Jesus describes hell. Mark 9, unquenchable fire. 
unquenchable fire. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not fire and the, die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 13, Matthew 13, 40 through 42, fiery furnace, 49 and 50, fiery furnace. This is Jesus talking here. Matthew 18, thrown into eternal fire, thrown into the hell of fire. Matthew 25, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Beyond this, Jude, as we've already seen Revelation, the punishment of eternal fire, lake of fire. Biblically, hell is a place of fiery agony. Third, biblically, hell is a place of conscious torment. We've already seen this referenced in the rich man in hell in Luke 16. Revelation 14 envisions those in hell drinking the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength in the cup of his anger, tormented with fire, tormented day and night forever and ever, Revelation 20.10 says. Biblically, hell is a place of outer darkness. This is the language Jesus uses in Matthew 8, Matthew 22, Matthew 24. The gloom of outer darkness has been reserved forever for those in hell, Jude 12.13. The Bible teaches that hell is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here Jesus is saying that over and over and over again keeps saying it, keeps emphasizing it. Biblically, hell is a place of continual rebellion against God. This is key. We don't need to have this idea of hell as God casting people into eternity as their souls fall through space. They're crying out for mercy, but God's saying, too late, you had your chance. Now you're gonna suffer. That's not the kind of picture the Bible paints. And this is the whole point, in fact, of what the Bible paints. The Bible pictures men and women who are living in rebellion against God, and when they die, God gives them over to their rebellion. That's the whole picture of Romans 1.24 talks about. God gave them over to their sinful desires. So when you picture Philippians 2, 9 through 11, people confessing that Jesus is Lord, that doesn't mean they're repentant and gladly submitting to him as Lord. Russell Moore writes, the sinner in hell does not become morally neutral upon his sentence to hell. We must not imagine the damned sinner displaying gospel repentance and longing for the presence of Christ. The damned indeed are longing for an escape from punishment, but they are not new creations. They do not in hell love the Lord their God with their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Instead, they are now handed over to the full display of their natures apart from grace, natures that are satanic. Thus, the condemnation continues forever and ever with no end in view, either for the sin or the punishment thereof. People in hell are still rebelling against the lordship of God. That's why C.S. Lewis said, I don't have the quote here, he said there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who, says, those who say, thy will be done to God, or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All those that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. Hell is a place of continual rebellion, man given over to his freely chosen identity apart from God. Hell, a place of vile association, prepared for, shared by the devil and his angels, Matthew 25, filled with the cowardly, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars. Hell is a place of divine destruction. 2 Peter 3, 7, destruction of the ungodly. The punishment of eternal destruction, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, which leads to the next biblical reality. Hell is a place of complete separation. In our sin, separated from God, so in hell, given over to that separation. Think about what this means in this world, even though with all the sin and suffering around us, there's common grace from God all around us in this world. We have breath. There's good things for us to enjoy. Imagine the source of all good things taking away all of those things from us forever. Complete separation from the goodness of God. That's why you go all the way down through, through these different pictures in Scripture. 
Tim Keller says, what is a total human soul? It does not cease to exist, but rather becomes completely incapable of all the things a human soul is for. Reasoning, feeling, choosing, giving, receiving, love, or joy. Why? Because the human soul was built for worshiping and enjoying the true God. And all truly human life flows from that. In this world, all of humanity, even those who have turned away from God, still are supported by kindly providences or common grace, keeping us still capable of wisdom, love, joy, and goodness. But when we lose God's supportive presence altogether, the result is hell. Arthur Pink echoes, none but one who really knows God can begin to estimate what it will mean to be eternally banished from the Lord, forever separate from the fount of all goodness, never to enjoy the light of God's countenance, never to bask in the sunshine of His presence. This, this is the most awful of all. Which leads to the last reality about hell. Hell is a place of eternal duration. I put scripture after scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike, to show how the Bible talks about the eternity, eternality of hell. Forever and ever, eternal, everlasting. These are the words the Bible uses to describe hell. Thomas Watson writes, Thus it is in hell. They would die, but they cannot. The wicked shall be always dying, but never dead. The smoke of their furnace, its ends forever and ever. Oh, who can endure thus to ever be upon the rack? The word ever breaks the heart. Listeners of John, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, they were urged to consider the torment of burning like a livid coal, not for an instant or for a day, but for millions and millions of ages at the end of which people will realize that they are no closer to the end than when they first begun, and they will never, ever be delivered from that place. Imagine eternity in hell, never ending. After millions and millions of ages, you're no closer to the end than when you first begun. So, so there's many controversial questions that are often asked about hell. Is the Bible's description of hell literal or metaphorical? This lake of fire, fiery furnace, outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth, is that literally what's going on in hell? Are people literally burning in hell? And my answer is, I don't know. The Bible's descriptions of hell are possibly literal. There seems to be certainly a reason behind why we see such physical descriptions of hell in terms of darkness and fire and torment. It's what what image we see here, like we talked about from Jesus. There's a pretty persuasive quote here from Pink. At the same time, the Bible's descriptions of hell are possibly metaphorical, which is where people that I've quoted like Jonathan Edwards and Tim Keller would come down. But here's the key. Even if the biblical descriptions of hell are metaphorical, that's not very comforting. If fire and darkness and burning and torment are just symbols, then what are they symbols for? Snow? <laughs> or wintry vacation? Or day at the beach? Or happy hunting grounds? No, if these are symbols. We just realize the purpose of symbols is to express a reality that can't be expressed in words. It's worse. These are certainly not symbols of a good place to be. These are symbols of a horrifying place to be. So are they literal or metaphorical? Even if they're metaphorical, that's not comforting. That's extremely frightening. So don't get caught up on that question. Second controversial question. Isn't Gehenna just another word for a garbage dump? A question most recently made popular in Rob's back book, Rob Bell's book on hell, which would be an appropriate place for that book to go. And, and I got a quote here from Rob Bell, so I just want to make sure this is clear. Like, I've included quotes from Seventh-day Adventists about soul sleep and Maccabees about purgatory. And so those are, those are, most of the quotes I've got here are pointing to truth. There are some quotes in here that are pointing to falsehood, and this would be one of them. So Rob Bell, others claim that Gehenna, the ancient word that's often used to denote hell in the Bible, merely means garbage dung. So the word Gehenna is a transliteration of the Hebrew term 
Gehinnom, which is the valley of Hinnom, the south side of Jerusalem. So Bell writes, people tossed their garbage and wasted in this valley. There was a fire there, burning constantly, consumed the trash. Wild animals fought over the scraps of food along the edges of the heap. When they fought, their teeth would make a gnashing sound. Gehenna was the place where the gnashing of teeth, where the fire never went out. Gehenna was an actual place that Jesus' listeners would have been familiar with. So the next time someone asks you if you believe in an actual hell, you can always say, yes, I do believe that my garbage goes somewhere. So Rob Bell takes this word that Jesus uses for hell, and he says, it's just a garbage dump. But this idea of Gehenna as a simple garbage dump is deceptively misleading. Even if this term was inspired by the image of an actual garbage dump, which we'll get to in a second, that still doesn't mean that Jesus is referring to the actual dump when he uses this word. You insert garbage dump into the verses I put here. It makes no sense. Matthew 5.22. Whoever says you fool is in danger of the garbage dump. Matthew 5.29. It's better you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown in the garbage dump. The idea that Jesus means Gehenna, Gehenna is a simple garbage that misunderstands the whole purpose of imagery in the first place. People sometimes call a gridlocked interstate a parking lot. It's a parking lot out there on I-65. Well, that statement is inspired by a literal parking lot. But nobody's saying that people drive up onto the freeway, stop, lock their cars, and go about their busy days. That totally misunderstands the entire way language and imagery works. So the idea of Gehenna as a simple garbage dump is first, deceptively misleading. Second, it's biblically inaccurate. You go back in Old Testament history, you see this valley, the Valley of Anam, was the center of idolatrous worship. Second Chronicles 28, you see offerings of the Baals made in the Valley of Anam, even child sacrifices happening there. Second Chronicles 33, Jeremiah 7, same thing. Jeremiah 19, Jeremiah 32 pictures this as a valley of abomination and judgment. So biblically, the idea of Gehenna as a simple garbage dump is just plain wrong. It's biblically inaccurate. This is a place of judgment and torment and slaughter that represents sin. And finally, the idea of Gehenna as a simple garbage dump is historically unlikely. There is little to no evidence from the time of the New Testament that the Valley of Hinnom was ever the town dump in the first place. The first reference to Gehenna as the town dump is from a rabbi named David Kimhi in 1200 AD. He wrote, Gehenna is a repugnant place into which filth and cadavers are thrown, and when its fires perpetually burn in order to consume the filth and bones, on which account, by analogy, the judgment of the wicked is called Gehenna. And Kimhi, even with this unsubstantiated new historical observation, recognized what we talked about earlier. This would still just be an analogy of a real eternal place of judgment. But still, what are the chances that Jesus is thinking of this town dump when he uses the word Gehenna, when there's no evidence that there ever was such a dump until over a thousand years after Jesus had died and risen from the grave? You put all that together and you realize the idea of Gehenna as a simple garbage dump is garbage. So, according to all of Scripture, the image of Gehenna is a violent picture of divine punishment. That's abundantly clear. Second controversial question. What about annihilationism? The idea that after unbelievers have suffered the penalty of God's wrath for a time, God will annihilate them so they no longer exist. So they, basically this is the idea that hell's not forever, but there's an ending point. Some people say the end point is when they die, penalty of sin is simply that you just are completely going out of existence right when you die. Or others say that you go to hell for a while and then you you go out of existence. And, and they talk, point to verses like Philippians 3, 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Peter 3, talk about the destruction of sinners. So the, the, our idea, the argument is that once somebody's destroyed, they obviously no longer exist. And, and the thought behind this argument is that the, the eternal, never-ending, everlasting, conish, conscious punishment of sinners is not commensurate with the love of God. Surely God would not subject people to that. After all, doesn't sin committed in time demand, in punish, demand punishment in time as opposed to punishment that exists throughout all time? And certainly at this question, we feel the emotional weight behind this argument, the thought of eternity. We talked about forever. And torment and punishment is unimaginable. It's inconceivable in many ways. So how are we to square that with the love of God? Is eternal punishment a just punishment for sin? 
And these questions lead us back to the gospel where we've seen that, yes, biblically one sin against an infinite God warrants infinite judgment. We talked about this. This is huge to understand. The gravity of sin is not determined by the gauge of the one who sins. Instead, the gravity of sin is determined by the greatness of the one who sinned against. The biblical reality is clear. Azim, Arab follower of Christ, friend of mine, talking to a taxi cab driver in his Arab country. And this guy says, well, I'm going to probably spend a little bit of time in hell, but then hopefully I'll go to heaven after that. Azim looks at him and says, let me ask you a question. If I slapped you in the face, what would you do to me? He said, I'd kick you out of my car. He said, what if I went up to a police officer on the, on the side of the road and I slapped him in the face? What would he do to me? He said, well, he'd beat you up and he'd throw you into jail. I said, well, what if I went to the king of our country and I slapped him in the face? And the guy kind of laughed. He said, you'd die. He said, why? He said, well, because you slapped the king. And as he looked back at him and said, so you see, the measure of sin is not determined by what is actually done, but by, who, by what is done and who it is done against. This is the picture. This is what we see in Scripture. So, biblically then, biblically, one sin against an infinite God warrants infinite punishment. So biblically, annihilation is unsupportable. Even when the Bible talks about destruction, destruction is clearly not a reference to a cessation of existence, particularly in light of everything else the Bible said about hell that we've read through. Clearly, even when you get to Matthew 26, the Son of Man goes goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man, talking about Judas, who would betray him, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for him, for that man, if he had never been born. Clearly, Judas's fate as condemned for sin is worse than if he had not been born. I.e., hell is worse than non-existence. Non-existence would be better, but non-existence is not the reality for the condemned. Annihilation, annihilationism, in the end, contradicts the clear teaching of the Bible. So that's biblically, but then taking a step further, practically, ask the question, does temporary punishment pay the sinner's price? So the idea behind annihilationism is that after a certain period of time, a shorter, limited period of time, that's going to be sufficient to satisfy the price of sin. Well, if that's the case, if the full price of sin has been paid, then at that point, wouldn't the sinner go to heaven instead of into non-existence? After all, the price for sin has been paid, and the sinner would go to heaven if that punishment has been paid. If it's not been paid, then the price for sin is still unpaid and the sinner remains in hell. When you put that together, you realize annihilation is not just biblically unsupportable, but practically annihilation is unsustainable. Well, what then about revolution? What about universalism? The idea that all people will eventually be saved and experience eternity with God. Universalism comes in many forms, cloaked in many ways. Non-Christian universalists believe that Jesus is the only, only one way to God in heaven among many different religions or supposedly Christian universalists believe that Jesus is the only way to God in heaven, but eventually all people are going to be saved through Jesus. Enter Rob Bell. At the heart of this perspective is the belief that given enough time, everybody's going to turn to God and find themselves in the joy and the peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart. Even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. So what are we to think about that? Does the Bible teach this? Look at Philippians chapter 2. Paul says the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. But this is not a reference to universal salvation. This is universal submission. I want to be careful even the way I use the word submission there. I'm not talking about willing, glad submission. I'm talking about rebellious submission that we talked about earlier. Think about the devil here. One day, ultimately, he will submit to Jesus as Lord. That doesn't mean the devil will be saved. It's the same reality that's reflected in Isaiah 45, which is what Paul's alluding to in Philippians chapter 2. And the, the key here, you keep reading through the book of Philippians, you'll see that Paul does not nullify the distinction between the saved and the condemned as if they're going to end up in the same place in the end. Instead, Paul highlights the destiny of both the saved and the condemned. Philippians 1, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, clearly Paul says, their citizenship is not in heaven, those who turn from Christ. Then consider 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all shall be made alive. There it is. In Christ, all shall be made alive. Which sounds conviction until you read the next verse. 
And Jesus said, and Paul says, but each in his own order, Christ the first verse, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. And you don't stop until you get the last verses where Paul flat out says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, i.e. condemned, damned. That's not a very universalistic approach. Or consider Second, First Timothy 2, another passage, the universalist point to where Paul says this is good, pleading inside of God our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. That's huge. Many people, like Nels Fair here, a universalist, would say the logic of the situation is simple. Again, this is a Rob Bell, Seventh-day Adventist, Maccabees quote. Logic of the situation is simple. Either God could not or would not save all. If he could not, he's not sovereign, then not all things are possible with God. If he would not, again, the New Testament is wrong, for it openly claims that God would have all to be saved. So the logic goes, God desires all to be saved. Does God have power to carry out all that he wants to do? Well, if not, then he's not omnipotent. If he does, then he's going to carry it out, and everybody's going to be saved in the end. But clearly, the context around this verse, 1 Timothy 2.4, does not mean that all people are going to be saved. You study that passage, and you see right before it, the whole point is we pray for all types of people, including kings and those who are in high position. We pray for all types of people because God saves all types of people through Christ. Likewise, this does not mean that God's will has been thwarted. The Bible's clear in Job. No purpose of God can be thwarted. Remember, there's a distinction. You go back to other secret church. We've talked about this before. Remember the revealed will of God, what he declares? There's times in Scripture where God declares his will, what he desires. Ten commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. So it is, is it God's will that we not murder? Yes. Is it God's will that we not steal or lie or commit adultery? Yes, that's the will of God. The will of God is your sanctification, abstain from sexual morality. So that's the will of God. But is there murder in the world? Is there stealing in the world? Does that mean that God's not omnipotent? He doesn't want murder. Certainly not. He, does, he declares don't murder. That doesn't mean he's not omnipotent when murder happens in the world. Especially when you remember the secret will of God, what he decrees. In other words, God's sovereign over everything. And the Bible oftentimes talks about his will in terms not of what he declares, but what he decrees, i.e. what's happening in the world. And that involves evil, including murder and stealing and lying. Look at Genesis 50, verse 20. Jesus, Joseph being sold into slavery. Was Joseph being sold into slavery the will of God? Yes and no, right? Like in the sense of, was it, did God declare? Brothers, lie. Think about murdering him and then lie. No, he said, don't murder, don't lie. That's not his will. But was it his will? Look at Joseph's conclusion, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about many people that would be kept alive as they are today. This was God's will, to bring about the salvation of his people in the midst of famine. And you look at Acts 2.23. Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Think about the crucifixion of Christ on this Good Friday. Was the murder of Christ the will of God? Yes and no, right? He didn't say, I declare you should murder. No, he says, don't murder at the same time, he absolutely decreed the murder of his son for the sake of our salvation. So you put this together. This doesn't mean that God's love is in question. The fact that all people won't be saved. This doesn't put God's love in question. He has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is love. He so loved the world that he gave his son. And in all this, we need to remember the mystery. God is sovereign over all these things. And we are responsible for the choices we make. And in the end, we see Scripture sees hell as self-chosen, J.I. Packer said, hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. All this comes back to the very idea of universalism. If you're still not convinced, consider the silence of scripture, of silence in, in scripture. Nowhere, nowhere does scripture say that there's going to be a second chance for people after heaven or a, after death. Or nowhere does scripture say that all people are gonna, eventually going to be out of hell. That leads to our last question. What about people who have nev never have a chance to hear the gospel? And I want to ask this question because we're about to hear about 
Chinese Muslims who are in this circumstance, who for generations have never heard the gospel. So what happens to Chinese Muslims who are unreached with the gospel, meaning they've not heard it? Will they go to heaven or hell? Well, there's not a verse in Scripture where I could point you to where Jesus says, some of you may wonder what happens to people who never hear about me. Well, here's the answer. That would, be, that would help, Secret Church. We could end this and go to break, just like that. But, but that doesn't mean Scripture's silent on this. I think Scripture speaks clearly on certain truths that inform our understanding of this question. So I want to run through them quickly. And, and most of them are from the book of Romans. What does Scripture say? One, all people have knowledge of God the Father. What may known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so men are without excuse. Although they knew God, all men have knowledge of God the Father. Everywhere in the world, Chinese Muslims have knowledge of God. He's made it clear to them in creation all around them. All people, second truth, all people reject true knowledge of God. Although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. The thing became futile, full of starch, darkened, claimed to be wise, became fools, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, or reptiles. God gave them over to sinful desires. That's the whole picture there. They turned from God. And it's not just Chinese Muslims, it's all of us. All people reject true knowledge of God, which leads to the third truth. There are no innocent people in this world. Romans 3, none is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned away, they've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So you ask, well, what about innocent Chinese Muslims who never heard the gospel? Are they going to go to heaven? If you ask me that question, I'll say, yes, absolutely, they'll go to heaven, even though they've never heard the gospel. Innocent Chinese Muslims will definitely go to heaven, even though they've never heard the gospel. The problem is, innocent Chinese Muslims don't exist. There are no innocent Chinese Muslims. There are guilty Chinese Muslims all around China and different places in the world, and that's why they need the gospel. If they didn't have sin, if they were innocent, then of course they'd go to heaven. They'd have no need for a savior. But there's not one person on the planet who's in that boat. See how this is how questions often phrased. What about the innocent guy over there who's never heard? There's not innocent people over there. There's guilty people over there here among us. And this is why we need the gospel. No innocent people in the world, which leads to the fourth truth. All people are condemned for rejecting God. Now, I include this. Sounds kind of like what we just said. This is important. I want to ask you a question. Do you think it would be just for God to condemn someone to hell for not believing in Jesus when they never had a chance to hear about Jesus? I don't think it would be. Just for God to condemn someone to hell. And I don't think Scripture teaches that it's just for God to condemn someone to hell for not believing in Jesus when they haven't had a chance to hear about Jesus. But the reality is that doesn't, that doesn't Get that person, make that person okay then. The reality is they're not condemned ultimately for rejecting Jesus. They're condemned for rejecting God. And the reason this is so key is because there's an idea among many in the church that certainly because they've not heard, God's going to let them in. But if you think that, and I know there's an emotional pull to that, but as soon as we think that, okay, because they've not heard that God's going to let them in, the very next step is to say, well, what's the worst thing we could do for them then? Go tell them the gospel. Oh, thanks a lot for having secret church and mobilizing to go to the nations. Before you got here, we were on our way to heaven. Now that you came, there's a chance we could go to hell. <laughs> Stop your secret meetings. It makes no sense. This is what I mentioned. Imagine going up to a college student who's never heard the gospel from another country, never heard the gospel, here going to school, and you go up to him and say, Have you heard about Jesus? And they say, I've never heard about Jesus. And if, if you believe that they're going to heaven precisely because they've never heard about Jesus, what are you going to do? You're going to look at them in the face and say, if anybody tries to tell you about him, put your fingers in your ears and start yelling really loud and run away. <laughs> no, all people are condemned for rejecting God. So all people, it's Romans 3, 19, 20. 
stand before God condemned. Which leads to the next truth. Good news of the gospel. God's made a way of salvation for the lost. God has made a way. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God and our Oh, don't memorize the bad news. Like, get the good news too. They're justified freely by His grace and the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. He's made a way of salvation for the lost. And that way, the way for us to be saved is through Christ, through faith in Christ. Leading the next truth, people cannot come to God apart from faith in Christ. Paul makes that clear in Romans 3.27. Romans 5, we're justified by faith and the love of God for us in Christ. How can we be saved? We've talked about it, but put our faith in Christ. And this is good news when you hear it. But Carl Henry said... Gospel's only good news if it gets there on time. In time. People can't come to God apart from faith in Christ. And Chinese Muslims, 10 million of them, and one and a half billion other peoples like them, can't come to God through Christ because they haven't heard Christ. So the seventh truth in Romans is abundantly clear. Christ commands the church then to preach the gospel to all peoples. How can they call on the one they've not believed? And how can they believe in one whom they've never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching them? Do we realize this? Ladies and gentlemen, there are literally a billion and a half people in the world who right now in this moment have enough knowledge of God. Their knowledge of God is only sufficient to damn them to hell. And you and I, 6,000 of us, we've got the gospel. Forbid it, Lord, that we would sit back in our lives and our families and our churches and spend all our money and all our resources and all our time on ourselves and making ourselves more comfortable and making ourselves, filling our traditions like we want them to, just coasting this thing through until we get to heaven and ignore a billion and a half people who've never even heard. You believe that. You believe the gospel. I've prayed for this moment. I've prayed that in this moment, God might, by His grace, wake up some college student, some young couple, some family, some middle-aged man or woman, some couple about to enter retirement, some couple in retirement, some single man or woman. God, wake somebody up in this moment. Open the eyes of somebody to see this reality. People are going to hell and they've not even heard the gospel. That somebody right now will stop and decide that you're not going to leave it up to somebody else to get the gospel to them. But by the grace of God, you're going to go. You're going to go. You're going to pack your bags. You're going to move your life family, whatever. You're not going to sit on this gospel and coast it out any longer. You're going to spend your life for the sake of the unreached around the world because the thought of entire peoples who are going to everlasting hell without ever hearing the gospel is too much for you to take. And tonight you're going to decide to give your life to go into one of these people groups so they can know the gospel and the glory of Christ. God, may it be so. All right, we're going we're gonna to finish up with final conclusions on hell and then move right into heaven. Um, then we'll take break and then close out with Revelation. So, final conclusions in light of the horror of hell. One, we must declare this doctrine unapologetically. So many Christians claim to believe in the doctrine of hell, 
but they keep silent about it. We keep silent, almost like we're embarrassed of it. Ajith Fernando wrote a helpful book on hell. It's recommended in the back of your study guide. But he said, evangelicals are often apologetic about the biblical view of retribution. They say they wish that the Bible, what this Bible says about the punishment of sinners is not true. That they find it hard to accept this doctrine emotionally. But because the Bible teaches it, they're forced to believe it. This type of thing is understandable given our human frailty and inability to fully understand God's ways. We don't see the seriousness of sin as strongly as God sees it. But many today seem to be proud that their hearts rebel against the judgment of God. The message they convey to an outsider is they think God's wrong and unfair, but that's what he's going to do. So they reluctantly include it in their statement of faith. Bottom line, we need to stop apologizing for God when it comes to hell. I so appreciate Francis Chan's personal confession here because I and probably many of you have can identify with it. He said, like the nervous kid who tries to keep his friends from seeing his drunken father, I've tried to hide God at times. Who do I think I am? The truth is God's perfect and right in all that he does. I'm a fool for thinking otherwise. He doesn't need nor want me to cover for him. There's nothing to be covered. Everything about God and all he does is perfect. So we need to stop apologizing for God when it comes to the doctrine of hell. We need to start apologizing to God. Francis continues, would you have thought to rescue sinful people from their sins by sending your son to take on human flesh? Would you have thought to enter creation through the womb of a young Jewish woman and be born in a feeding trough? Would you have thought to allow your created beings to torture your son, lacerate his flesh with whips, and then drive nails through his hands and feet? It's incredibly arrogant to pick and choose which incomprehensible truths we embrace. No one wants to ditch God's plan of redemption, even though it doesn't make sense to us. Neither should we erase God's revealed plan of punishment because it doesn't sit well with us. As soon as we do this, we are putting God's action in submission to our own reasoning, which is a ridiculous thing for Clay to do. We must declare this doctrine unapologetically. Second, we must declare this doctrine humbly. So let this doctrine humble you. Don't ever say, I can never love a God who, who what? Who, a God who would disagree with you? A God who would do things that you would never do? A God who would never allow bad things to happen to good people? A God who would be more concerned about his own glory than your feelings? A God who would send people to hell? Humble yourself, brother or sister. Humble yourself in view of God's sovereignty, in view of our salvation. We must declare this doctrine humbly. We must declare this doctrine continually. If this is true, we can't stay silent about this. When was the last time you told someone else who's apart from Christ that hell is real? You say, well, wouldn't it be offensive for me to do that? The most offensive thing for you is not to do that. We need to be reminded that divine judgment is coming. This is what John the Baptist came warning people about. Tozer said, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unheeded. We need to be reminded that the divine, ju the divine judgment is coming. We need to be reminded that the pleasures of sin are fleeting. It's not worth it. Sin is not worth it. We need to tell people and ourselves C.S. Lewis described the safest road to hell as the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, milestones, or signposts. The devil is luring people to hell on a soft, gradual slope. We need to be reminded that wealth in this world is passing. All of the wealth, particularly 50 states, United States, Canadian provinces, Western culture, all across the place. One day, all of our wealth is going to burn up. And the pursuit of possessions will inevitably lead to eternal punishment. First Timothy 6, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. James 5, come now, you, re you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
We need to be reminded that unrighteousness is unrewarding, that sin kills, that sin damns. It damns. Which leads us to this next reality. We must declare this doctrine with holiness. Meaning, it makes no sense to tell people about the deadly eternal consequences of sin while willfully indulging in sin. Jesus' teaching on Mark 9 is couched in a clarity and call to purity and holiness. Obviously, we must declare this doctrine with compassion, with the compassion of Jeremiah who wept over the sinfulness of God's people, compassion of Christ who wept over the city of Jerusalem. R.W. Dale said, I've never heard D.L. Moody refer to hell without tears in his voice. We must declare this doctrine with compassion, and ultimately we must declare this doctrine with urgency. We don't have time to waste. In the hardest, most trying, most stretching, most challenging, most difficult, most dangerous, most deadly places in the world, we must declare this doctrine and the glorious truth of God's grace with it for the salvation of the peoples of the world, no matter what it costs us. What is more urgent for you and I to give our lives to than to proclaim this truth to people we know and love, live around, work with? What is more urgent for us to do than make this news known to people groups around the world who've never heard it? The horror of hell. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.